Hello and welcome to Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, outrages, and triumphs in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh Lahaz, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Christine Van Gein, the Canadian Constitution Foundation's litigation director. And I'm Joanna Barron, executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. In today's episode, we'll be talking about calls to ban a far-right political party in Germany. We'll discuss a looming constitutional crisis in Israel. And I'll give an update on a constitutional challenge to a Quebec ban on prayer in schools. And we'll share our bad legal takes of the week where we take a lighthearted look at legal opinions that didn't quite land. But first, let's talk about a story that people here in Ontario have been trying to wrap their heads around the controversy over the green belt. Christine, tell us what's going on. So I wanted to do this news take last week when we recorded our first podcast. I actually received an embargoed copy of the Auditor General's report because I am a member of the media as the host of Canadian Justice. So I actually got to read the report on Tuesday morning about an hour early. Obviously, I would not have talked about it until it the embargo had been lifted. But I had a lot of immediate thoughts. So let me give you the background to explain what this was. Ontario's Auditor General did a report looking into the provincial government's decision to open parts of the Greenbelt for development. The Greenbelt is property that, I forget if it was the Wynn or McGuinty government, that had, through legislation, put restrictions on development. The Ford government, which for a long time has expressed concerns over housing affordability and availability, they decided to open the green belt for development so that people could have more homes. So the attorney general report on the green belt found that the process for opening the green belt for development had a number of problems. She found that it had failed to consider environmental, agricultural, financial risks and impacts. And in particular, that the process was rushed and subject to political interference and political preference for which pieces of land would get open for development. The Auditor General found that political staff, and in particular, the Chief of Staff for the Minister of Housing, had substantial control over the amendment process, the process that decided what land would get removed from the Greenbelt. And she found that the Chief of Staff had actually changed the criteria for selecting development sites and truncated or shortened the process. I think it ended up being a three-week process instead of what the public service wanted to be a much longer process. The most damning part of the report is related to this sort of suggested political interference. The Auditor General found that 12 of the 15 parcels of land that were chosen to be removed from the Greenbelt and allowed to develop had been requested for removal by the developers. In other words, developers had bought that land and they would make a fortune if they could get the government to open it for development. And the Auditor General found about 92% of the land that was removed from the Greenbelt had been requested to be removed by the Chief of Staff at the request of developers. Now, the Minister of Housing himself claims to have been unaware about this lobbying process, and the Auditor General is very skeptical of that claim. She thinks he either knew or ought to have known. The Auditor General also found that there could potentially be a breach of the Public Service of Ontario Act, in particular, some conflict of interest provisions. And in her press conference releasing this report, she did say to media that she had discussed this issue 
with the OPP and the Ontario Integrity Commissioner. So what's my hot take on this? I actually was expecting it to be a lot worse. Anyone who has been following this issue thinks that it's pretty obvious that developers either had advanced knowledge of what land was going to be removed or that they lobbied for land to be removed from the Greenbelt. And there's no implication here at all that there was advanced knowledge, just that there was lobbying. Uh, there's no suggestion at all of anything like bribes being paid, which would have been way, way worse. This, to me, looks like effective lobbying. If the lobbyists' bosses read these reports, those lobbyists should probably get a raise because they did a really good job advocating for their clients here. There is a need for housing in Ontario. There's a very big need. And it feels a bit like there's this attitude within the bureaucracy that we're the bureaucrats, we make the decision, the political staff can't ever get involved or override our decisions, even though ultimately the, the legislation does permit that and the decision is and perhaps should be a political one to be able to make. And this is familiar to me from the pandemic. We saw a lot of fights during the pandemic between public health bureaucrats and politicians. A lot of bad decisions were made by both of these groups during the pandemic. But I will remind everyone listening that we elect politicians. We do not elect bureaucrats. So there's there's a, a big accountability measure for, for political staff and, and political operatives that does not exist for the public service and bureaucracy. Now, I am not saying that I loved what I read in the report at all. I I actually don't like it at all. I just was expecting it to be a lot worse. I find lobbying, uh, I guess the technical term is I find it a bit icky or gross. And there is a certain grossness here. It's just that I was expecting a lot more. And it's also really important to remember that this is not government land we're talking about here. This is privately owned land. And some of this land was tremendously just devalued when it was subject to the green belt by the government years ago. The government changed the rules around what people could do with their own property. So now they're changing some of those rules back. It's not like the government, the Ford government is here turning a public park into a garbage dump. They're just telling private landowners what they may do with their own land. And it seems like a lot of those landowners will choose to have it developed. So uh, Joanna, what's what's your hot take on this? Yeah, well, so just briefly, I'd make two comments. First is that one of the reactions that I saw on Twitter, and I guess this could be a bonus bad legal take um, from Doug Smith, who is uh, the Raptors reporter, but seems to have no shortage of bad takes, had a tweet that was something like, hope the OPP is like getting ready to lay criminal charges, because I think people were underwhelmed by this report, much like you, who were expecting something spicier, more of a smoking gun. And it is true that the OPP can still investigate and possibly lay charges. I'm not sure what they're going to find. I'm not holding this... my breath. <laughs> right. Um, but I always find it interesting that these people are all of a sudden like, lock them up. And then yeah. the second, it's just like kind of the broader context, which you touched on, but it bears underscoring. Um, Canada is about to embark on something fairly unprecedented in terms of our aggressive immigration targets. You know, 1.5 million new Canadians by 2024 or 2025. Most of them will end up in the GTA. Like, I just, it can't be underscored enough how much we need to build. 
Um, and you can turn your nose up on that. Um, you know, certainly you can be critical of the, you know, transformative nature of the immigration targets. I have concerns because if people are going to come and be part of sort of Club Canada and all of the social benefits that involves, like we need to make sure we can house and school and and feed and deliver medical care. Um, but the plan being what it is, uh, it means that a lot more people are going to have to be accommodated. So there's something distasteful. This type of rapid development pretty much only happens when there's like very significant buy-in from the private sector. Um, so that's my only comment on that. Josh? Yeah. So like you, like you, Christine, you know, the day before this was released, I was, uh, I was kind of excited. I was thinking that this is going to be huge. This has the potential to take down the premier. And to be clear, that's not something, you know, that I was rooting for or against, but um, I was just really excited to see what was in this huge bombshell report. And then I saw the Globe and Mail um, news alert pop up on my phone. It said something like, you know, AG Fund's process for removal of Greenbelt lands was not transparent and didn't take into account environmental impacts. And I was like, oh, okay, so there's no real story here, at least not yet. The story I was kind of expecting was that maybe there's evidence that Doug Ford or his minister tipped off developers that they were going to remove particular land so that the developers could buy it at a low price and profit. But there's really no hard evidence of that in the report. But really, honestly, the biggest thing that jumped out at me was just how weird it was that the Auditor General decided to make some of the bold conclusions that she made. You know, for example, she says ministers should have followed a particular process. Basically, Ontario doesn't really need to pursue this policy that we can do, you know, add all these people and somehow build all these homes without, you know, without making this policy change. But I really don't see how it's her job to comment on those sorts of things. Like, based on my reading of the Auditor General Act, her job is to do value for money audits and to do uh, environmental audits in some cases uh, to report on, you know, advertising spending, things like that. And there's a section of the act that talks about how she can look into, you know, whether proper procedures for measuring the effectiveness of programs was uh, satisfactory or not. So maybe that's where she gets the idea that this is in her mandate. But uh, that, too, is sort of focused on tax dollars and whether they're being properly spent. And so it would be different if this was, you know, I think, Christine, you pointed this out, if this was selling off publicly owned land rather than essentially changing zoning, that would obviously be in her mandate, but I'm really not sure that this is. So, you know, I think the, the, the position of Auditor General is important, and this Auditor General has done a good job of holding governments of all stripes to account in the past, but I honestly wonder if she's maybe overstepped her mandate here. I, and, I mean, I love this Auditor General. I When I worked for Canadian Taxpayers Federation, just I think that the work that she does on value for money audits is tremendous. And she always finds just incredible, incredible waste. Joanna, so um, speaking of potentially overstepping, we figured, you know, this week would be a good time to talk about what's going on in Israel, where there's also a debate about whether the prime minister may be going too far. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so we'll probably talk about this a few times because this is all careening towards a sort of... Uh, hearing at the Supreme Court, which is going to start September 12th. So to give a two-second background, although um, it's a complex story, essentially the Netanyahu government proposed a package of judicial reforms in January of this year, 
Israeli society just had an entire conniption with entire parts of the civil service saying they would refuse to comply, portions of the IDF, huge mass protests. But anyways, where we are now is that one, the first plank of those reforms was passed in late July by a majority of the Knesset. The rest of the members who did not support it simply walked out. The Knesset is, of course, the Israeli parliament. And Immediately after the first plank being passed, the first plank has to do with reasonableness, and I'll kind of touch on that in a moment. Petitions were filed with the Supreme Court of Israel to challenge the law. And there's been, you know, to say that there's been a lot of hyperbole around this is an understatement. Just this morning, I was reading an op-ed by Thomas Friedman, uh, who reports a lot on the Middle East, although I don't usually agree with his views, but this is what he said about it about what the outcome of this Supreme Court hearing will be. The heads of the military, Mossad, Shin Bet, and the police will have to decide to whom they are loyal, a political coalition engaged in a judicial putsch or a Supreme Court that preserves its independence. So this is pretty paper hyperbolic to call it a judicial push. And this is where it's you know probably useful to review what the law actually does. So currently, the Israeli Supreme Court, since the 90s, where it had a sort of renaissance um, under a very powerful academic and judge named Aron Barak, they have granted themselves through various judicial uh, rulings the ability to overturn any law or executive order of the Knesset, of the parliament, that they find unreasonable. And they determine this on the basis of like the objective, ideal, sovereign leader. And so just to be clear, first of all, Israel does not have a written constitution. It has basic laws that the court themselves sort of discovered. Uh, and second of all, no other Western democracy, certainly not Canada, the US or the UK, um, has a court that enables it to do it. For certainly in Canada and in the UK, parliamentary democracies, there's a, there's a general presumption of parliamentary supremacy. So any you know proposal to give our Supreme Court this type of power to just say, not not that a law of parliament is unconstitutional, that's not what we're talking about, that it's unreasonable on some mythical golden standard. So, you know, I, I actually have mixed feelings about the reform, certainly their political wisdom, it certainly has, you know, thrown Israel into convulsion. Um, I have, you know, personal investment, I consider myself a Zionist, I know that's a kind of dirty word. I'm a Jewish person. I've spent a lot of time living in Israel. My family and friends are in Israel. So I don't like to see the sort of like mass divisions in society. And I'm even more worried about kind of the word on the street is that it's very likely that the Supreme Court is going to rule that this new judicial reform is unconstitutional and will overturn it. And then we're in truly terrifying territory. And actually, Thomas Friedman's op-ed said Israel might become like a Lebanon in the terms of a society that's just so riven by splits that it's ungovernable. I hope that doesn't happen. Jeremy Waldron gave a talk at Oxford this summer, and he gave uh, a commentary on this that I thought was apropos. He said, part of what is going on is a fight about the meaning of democracy in Israel, with a suggestion on the one side that Israel needs these reforms to vindicate basic democratic principles because interference by an unelected court is, is undemocratic, undemocratic, and on the other side by the puzzling claim that Israel will become much less of a democracy if judicial power is diminished in any way. That is a rather Orwellian understanding of democracy 
but it's been a staple of defenses of judicial review for as long as I can remember. So Jeremy Waldron, generally considered to be progressive and on the left, and it was refreshing to see this perspective. But do either of you have any hot takes or thoughts about the crisis in Israel? And I'm sure we'll talk about this in September when the Supreme Court actually hears the petitions. I don't know if I have any hot takes necessarily on this uh, this particular reasonableness law other than it, it it sort of strikes me as perfectly legitimate for for the Knesset to do I mean the it's not as if Israel has a written constitution and they debated at the beginning of Israel uh, you know whether they should have a written constitution and decided against it. so um, that's that's sort of my hot take on that I'm also interested in these other reforms um, that could be coming in the future in Israel that are also proving extremely controversial there, but wouldn't really be controversial at all in Canada. In fact, we already have those two reforms in place. What I'm talking about here is, you know, one proposal is that a majority of members of the Knesset could overrule Supreme Court rulings. And we have a similar mechanism here, uh, which is Section 33 of the Charter. You know, Section 33 allows governments to say that laws will operate notwithstanding certain provisions of the Charter. Um, outside Quebec, it hasn't been used much. It's really seen as sort of a last resort. And as long as it stays a last resort, I think it can serve serve as a really important check on the judiciary, which at times can get sort of drunk on power. For example, the, in this 2014 case called Saskatchewan Federation of Labor, the Supreme Court decided out of left field, forgive the pun, that Section 2D of the Charter, which guarantees freedom of association, somehow means that the Charter also guarantees a right to strike. And the court used this newly invented right to strike down the Saskatchewan government's legislation that declared some workers essential workers. The Charter doesn't mention a right to strike, but Justice Abella, in her infinite wisdom, decided it was time to give, in her words, benediction to this right. And that's really just not what judges are supposed to do. Here in Ontario, you know, we're staring down, I don't know, is it the fourth or maybe the fifth year in a row of disruption to to school for kids? Uh, this year, uh, due to a potential strike by teachers, last year there was a strike, the years before that there was COVID year after year, keeping kids out of classes. And I could see the government deciding, you know, enough is enough. We're going to declare teaching an essential service and legislate the teachers back to work and if they invoked section 33 to do that you know that would be perfectly legitimate i think so to me the idea that this these types of of laws are somehow anti-democratic it just doesn't um strike me as correct the other proposal in israel that has people sort of lighting their hair on fire is this plan to give politicians more power in the judicial appointment process and that might sound bad, but the way that Israel does it now is with a committee that's dominated by lawyers and judges. And that's also bad because this committee tends to just appoint like-minded people over and over again. It's like this perpetual motion machine where judges appoint people who think like them, and then they appoint people who think like them, and it just continues like that over and over again. And to me, that's not any better than you know how we do it here in Canada, which is that uh, the government appoints judges, and as the government changes, the judiciary also changes. Maybe I'm wrong, though. I don't know. Christine or Joanna, do you have... Well, I mean, there are lots of countries that have no committee selection process, i.e. 
let's be honest, Canada uh, and the U.S., it's purely controlled by a political mechanism. So Israel is just proposing to change the matrix because the understanding of the current process is that basically it enables judges to just, uh, the term is, appoint clones. So yeah, the fact that people are scandalized by changing the makeup of the committee that appoints, if you look at how this is done in other Western liberal democracies, again, I just, the people must have lost their brains the way that the, the, the outrage, like people have forgotten how this actually operates in other democracies. I think that the issue is that people don't actually understand the reforms, right? Because what we see in the media is headlines, right? We see you, you know, Netanyahu wants to uh, destroy democracy in Israel by bringing in radical judicial reforms, reforms it's, that are are not as radical as what we actually have in Canada. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's like Israel will be transformed into tyrannical nightmare that is Canada. Like, give me a give me a break. I think people just don't understand what the reforms actually are. They don't understand what other countries have so they don't have enough context people don't understand our own system enough to be able to compare it to what's being proposed in israel so joanna it's so important that you have taken the time to to lay out what what these reforms actually do and it will be super interesting to see what what happens in in the fall josh why don't you, uh, what, you're actually going to talk about another country today. Yeah, let's I talk guess about doing, another scary judicial push. Yeah, we're doing the Around the World Day today, I guess. Josh, what, what's your news headline today? Yeah, it's been a pretty slow week in Canada, other than that, that green belt story, which, you know, biggest story of all time. Um, yeah, so I'm going to talk <laughs> about Germany. Germany has, so I'll do a quick overview of German politics. I apologize for that. Um, but, you know, Germany has this big center left party called the Social Democrats, which is sort of like the liberals. They have a big center right party, which is called the Christian Democrats, who are sort of like our conservatives. And because their Bundestag is elected through a system that has elements of proportional representation, those big parties tend to need at least one smaller party to govern. So right now you have the Social Democrats governing with the help of the Greens and also an even smaller party that's roughly a libertarian party. But a new party has emerged, and it's now giving these top parties a run for their money. It's called Alternative for German Germany, or the AFD. And the AFD is a far-right party. It's, you know, skeptical of the European Union, it's anti-immigration, skeptical of man-made climate change, and it opposes same-sex marriage. Most controversially, it's plainly anti-Semitic and Islamophobic. You know, for example, in 2016, they had a manifesto that said Islam does not belong in Germany, and it called Muslims a danger to our state, our society, and our values. They want to ban minarets. They want to ban burqas. They want the state to, you know, sort of spy on and regulate imams. And they're also anti-Semitic. So, for example, one of their policy planks is that they want to ban circumcision. And I'll admit, when I first he heard that, I started laughing because it made me think about that Arrested Development episode where Lindsay Bluth starts that <laughs> anti-circumcision charity, Hoop, hands off our penises. Doesn't go well. She doesn't raise a lot of money. She gets cut in into some trouble with the Jews. You know, when I stopped laughing, I realized this is actually 
really disturbing. You know, it, this is Germany we're talking about, and they want to ban circumcision. They also want to ban importing and se selling kosher food, which they claim is a animal rights issue. But I think we really know what they're actually after there. And so I, I can't really think of a, a more anti-Semitic dog whistle than trying to ban kosher food. So yeah, it's a pretty nasty party, but it's doing better and better in the polls. And the latest polling, according to Politico, has them at 21%, which puts them ahead of the Social Democrats, who are now at 18%, and just behind the Christian Democrats, who are at 26%. So they have a real chance of forming government. And guess what? Now that they're doing this well, there's a serious conversation about banning them entirely from running. The co-leader of the Social Democrats has said that they might have to be banned. A former CDU minister has also suggested that they're on board with the ban. Even the president, who was, who's supposed to be nonpartisan, seemed to hint in a recent speech that they, they should be banned. And a new poll finds that the country is split 47-47 on this question of whether this big political party should be banned. So, you know, Joanna, obviously Germany has a very different history than Canada. Do you think this would be constitutional? Do you think it would be a good idea, even if it is constitutional? What are, what are your thoughts? So I have mixed thoughts because, yes, as, as you say, Germany has very specific reasons to be nervous about the rise of far-right anti-Semitic elements in its government. However, we also know that banning, expelling, suppressing this element, which has been part of modern German political culture uh, from the beginning, virtually also hasn't gone so well, you know, uh, the Nazis were also expelled from parliament. Hitler was also exiled. So I'm skeptical as a general principle that, you know, state bans do anything to resolve the sort of roots of the issue. My view with this is kind of similar to my view about Holocaust deniers or anti-Semitic elements, which is that if you ban them, if you, uh, you know, ban their, their dissemination or their free speech, you merely push them underground where they become far more dangerous, Right. Because we, we don't, we don't, we can't track them. We can't hear what they're saying. Most of all, we can't moderate their patently terrible ideas. Like if you would submit a member of the AFD to any type of dialogue about why they think uh, banning kosher food is ne is necessary for animal welfare, it would like very quickly fall apart. So, uh, but yeah, Germany is a strange place. We were talking about this yesterday. It's just, it, it has this natural strength and economic power, which it knows that it has to moderate by sort of like sh shackles of the EU. Um, but it also has always had this terrifying far-right anti-Semitic aspect. And so I'm not surprised that the knee-jerk reaction is to just outlaw ban it. Constitutionally, I don't think you could actually do this in Canada because we have Section 3 of the Charter that guarantees voting rights and and rights related to elections and things like that. So even if we some politician wanted to override that using the notwithstanding clause, the notwithstanding clause does not apply to uh, Section 3 of the Charter. So they would not be able to to do that. But Josh and I were, were working on an op-ed where we had created a hypothetical. It's related to another case that I won't get into, but about an consequences for unconstitutional laws. And we were trying to come up with a hypothetical 
for an op-ed that we had pitched to the line, which is an online uh, Substack publication. It's great. We love it. And they told us that our, our, so this is what the hypothetical was. It was that, you know, we had this, this new politician, his name was Populist Pete, and he had all kinds of ideas, some of them not so great. And so our our hypothetical politician, the, the mainstream elite politicians decided to to ban the party, ban him from running. And at the line, they said, this is too implausible. This this would never happen. Can you come up with a new hypothetical where it's it's more realistic than a political party being banned by a liberal democracy? Well, we did we did ultimately change it to something else, but now I'm I'm a little uh peeved because <laughs> I, I liked our original hypothetical. And I, I think we should maybe send this uh this story about Germany to to the editors and say, you know, this is this is not outside the the realm of reality. It's something that that is happening in, in Western democracies. And I just want to emphasize that to to be troubled by the banning of political parties is not an endorsement of the message of those parties, right? The 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 message that this party, I mean, I don't know much about it other than what Josh has just outlined. It it sounds really awful based on your description, Josh. But that does my opposition to banning politicians and political opposition it's not an endorsement of the message of those parties being banned. It's a, a concept of democracy that we should let uh, these things be hashed out by better ideas, defeating these bad ideas, not by suppressing these ideas through a the hammer of, of legislation, of unconstitutional legislation, and then allowing these mushrooms of, of of bad ideas to flourish in the dark, uh, which is what happened in, in the history of, of Germany as, as Joanna outlined. But that's, that's my brief take, brief take on the issue. I want to turn now back to Canada. I'm going to go through our freedom update where I'm going to explain to you what's going on with one of our cases uh, or a case that we're actually considering. We have not done anything yet, but we are working towards that. So my update this week is is on something happening in Quebec. It's an attack by the Quebec government on vulnerable students, and it is absolutely a violation of the constitutionally protected rights of those students, specifically freedom of religion. But as usual, most of the media and most of the country is not paying attention to this issue, even though it is scandalous. Why are they not paying attention? Well, because it's it's Quebec. They get a pass, I guess. So let me explain what is happening. On April 19th of this year, 2023, the Minister of Education in Quebec issued a new directive under the Quebec Education Act that requires, and I'm going to quote from the directive, that in each of their schools and in each of their centers, no location is used, both in fact and in appearance, for the purposes of religious practices, such as overt prayers or other similar practices. Keep in mind, I know a lot of you will be familiar with Bill 21, which is the law on secularism in Quebec. This regulation is not made under Bill 21. It's made under the Education Act. So there has been no invocation of Section 33 of the Notwithstanding Clause, which is how Bill 21 allows for discrimination against religious people in Quebec in the public service. 
the re- regulation, I'll, I'll explain the origin. It, it basically appears to have been made as a result of some schools in Laval, Quebec, which were permitting Muslim students to book rooms in public schools for praying. Uh, Muslims pray five times a day or observant Muslims pray five times a day. And some of those five times happen to fall during school hours. So after this regulation was enacted, the Minister of Education said that permitting prayer rooms, which are just regular classrooms that were being booked, they were not specially built prayer rooms, the minister said permitting that is not compatible with laicite, which is official secularism. But, you know, th- these were not dedicated prayer rooms. They were just regular rooms that were being booked by students for all kinds of purposes, like chess club, debate club. And for these students, they were being booked and used for praying. It's important to remember as well that the directive would ban overt prayer Uh, including prayer in hallways or even outside of these booked rooms. So for the minister to say we're banning prayer rooms, first of all, there are no prayer rooms. Second of all, you're banning it anywhere. You're banning prayer anywhere. Students can't pray in the hallway, on the grass of the field, outside, if it's on the school property. So the minister said it does not prohibit prayer, even though the language of the regulation actually or the directive does prohibit prayer, but he said students who wish to pray may do so, quote, silently and discreetly. I don't want to brand, ban prayer. I'm banning prayer in classrooms. Now, if want, people want to pray silently, it's their fundamental right. You, you know, it is people's right to pray however they choose. It is not for the government to tell people to tell students, private citizens, how they may or may not pray. That's absolutely appalling to me. And the practical effects of this are really serious. Students who want to pray during this school day will be required to leave school property. They need to go out in, in the snow, in the cold, in the rain, even though they could be easily accommodated. So as I said, these rooms can be, be booked by other students, just not by religious students. and. Keep in mind, this would apply to Christian, Muslim, Jewish, any religious student, although the impetus of this particular directive was clearly Muslim students. That's who this minister was especially concerned with. And what this is, is a total prohibition. And a total prohibition can't be justified in a free and democratic society. It also arguably disproportionately affects Muslim students because the reality is that Muslim students who pray five times a day are doing it in a much more observable way. As a consequence of the of this directive, religious students might have to leave the school system. They might have to leave public school and go somewhere else. This directive is being challenged. It's being challenged by the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and by a group of Muslim organizations. They're challenging it separately. The Christian Legal Fellowship has also been granted leave to intervene. And our update is that we are also going to be seeking leave to intervene in this case as an intervener or a friend of the court. In that role, we make submissions to show the greater, wider impact of the law. And I think we have a few good arguments we could make. I won't get into too much detail about what those arguments are going to be because we have not made them yet. I don't want to give any spoilers to the Quebec Attorney General's office who will be defending this law. 
but that is the case that we're working on. I'd be so interested what our viewers or what our listeners think of this law and in particular what they think of the fact that if this were brought in any other province, we would have national outrage. So that's that's my freedom update. Why don't we move now to our last segment, which is our bad legal takes. And I think, Joanna, you are up first. Yeah, well, I'll uh, I'll give a quick one. This is from the journalist Max Fawcett, and he was subtweeting somebody else. And his tweet is, why does your definition of efficacy depend on stacking the court with ideological drones rather than competent jurists like Richard Wagnell? Wagnell is, of course, uh, currently the chief justice of the Supreme Court. I'm not going to get into the part about ideological drones. I just need to highlight the bad legal take that he chose as his exemplar of a model jurist to be Richard Wagnell. So first of all, Wagnell is notorious for being the first chief justice to have commissioned a bust of himself. which you can see in the rotunda of the Supreme Court. Uh, And second of all, uh, you know, not to slander Justice Bagnall, he's a fine judge, um, but certainly his handling of uh, Russ Brown, who, of course, was uh, retired um, this spring, uh, I think was atrocious. I think across the sort of aisle um, within the legal community, it was seen to be completely lacking in clarity, transparency, and integrity. And so I would not pick him as my ideal model jurist. How about you, Josh, speaking of Supreme Court judges? Yeah, so the Supreme Court judge who, uh, well, former Supreme Court judge who I selected for her bad legal take didn't commission a bust of herself before she left the Supreme Court. But um, I'm kind of surprised. She's very modest. I'm kind of surprised that she wasn't the first to commission a bust. So this is Justice Rosalia Bella, and she's the one that I mentioned earlier who uh, decided in that Saskatchewan Federation of Labor case that it was okay to invent a charter right to strike because she is, you know, holier than the people and politicians who ushered in the charter and it was time to, quote, give it her benediction. Um, So she wrote a piece in the Washington Post, and it makes the claim that we need more, quote, rule of justice and less rule of law which to me sounds a lot like something, you know, a first year law student might say in a seminar that I would have definitely rolled my eyes at. But anyway, what does that even mean? Uh, rule of justice instead of rule of law? Well, to her, it appears to mean that judges should pay less attention to precedents, to the Constitution, and to the statutes, the legislators write, and just do whatever they think is the most, you know, progressive thing to do. And this is a really dangerous approach to the law because instead of us all being governed by predictable rules determined through a democratic process or through the incrementalism of the common law, we end up with, you know, unelected judges who are often kind of out of touch with the rest of us, imposing their policy preferences on the rest of us rather than, you know, following the constitution. She does make this fair point that in democracies, we can't just focus on what the majority wants. And that's true, and that's why we have an entrenched Bill of Rights that protects minorities. But here she's suggesting that it's okay for judges to, you know, ignore the constitutional text and the precedents when they're not progressive enough for her tastes. In this piece, she also tells 
a pretty remarkable story about how she was born in a displaced persons camp in Poland in 1946 after her parents survived the Holocaust. And uh, she talks about how she recently found this introductory speech that her father had written for Eleanor Roosevelt when she visited the camp, which talks about how his kids were alone, our fortune and our sole hope for the future. Honestly, it's really beautiful and touching. But then she basically says, you know, I'm this gift of hope to the world and I'm this gift that keeps on giving. And that really tells you something about how she views herself. So the whole piece to me, it's just a good reminder of how judges can become really kind of narcissistic and out of touch. And we really need to insist that they respect the rule of law and that when we appoint judges, we appoint judges who have a lot more humility than that. Christine, what's your what's your uh, bad legal take this week? So my bad legal take is actually a, a series of reactions to a pretty normal legal take. So th- it started off with this a criminal defense lawyer. His name is Joseph Newberger. He I've actually interviewed him for my TV show Canadian Justice. He he had a case recently where I guess he won, and he posted a photo of himself celebrating his his win with a, a cocktail. And he, this is, I'll read what he he wrote, finished a long week of closing submissions today on what we believe is a wrongful sex assault charge, very fair trial and happy to see the court was very receptive to our argument. It is vital that we never stop challenging the misconception that false allegations are rare. Happy weekend. So a few things, Newberger, he's a criminal defense lawyer and he has a specialized practice that deals with false allegations. It is literally in his marketing that they deal with false allegations. So he sees a disproportionate number of cases where that is the core issue. The part of his tweet that drew a lot of reactions and a lot of bad legal takes is a part where he says it is vital that we never stop challenging the misconception that false allegations are rare. Now, this has pissed off a lot of people. It is politically incorrect, I guess. I think we are not supposed to say that false allegations of sexual assault in particular, I don't think people are bothered by saying false allegations of other crimes exist. People are very bothered by the idea that we anyone would say false allegations of sexual assault exist. So when I interviewed Newberger, I asked him about how common or rare false allegations of sexual assault are. His position is that it is actually very difficult to know. The data studying false allegations is not great, and it's really hard to figure out how common or uncommon they are. But what he sees is because of his practice, which specializes in that, he sees it a lot. So it is not rare in his practice. And in the replies, someone did try to to, to his tweet. There was a lot of replies to his tweet. Someone cited a, a study from Brown University to show him like, no, you're wrong. False allegations are low. And this Brown report says, False reports are, to quote, consistently low, ranging from 2 to 10%. So I don't know what counts as low for you guys, but I mean, I don't actually think that that is evidence that it's it's low if we're going to accept that as the evidence. Uh, to say one in 10 allegations is fabricated, you're not you're not making the case to me that that it's rare. And I'm not taking a position one way or another, but the reactions to his post for suggesting that false allegations occur are are insane. I'm going to read some of them. Scumbag lawyers are scumbags. Thanks for outing yourself as rapist apologists, though always nice when closeted rapists tell on themselves. 
Here's another. How utterly depressing. How on earth, who on earth celebrates the shredding of an assault victim in court? Another one. No, you're just doing the work of the devil protecting abusers. Absolutely pathetic. I always wonder what kind of people protect these horrible creatures. It explains a lot. You, sir, are part of the problem, creating more crime and perpetuating violence. Sick, utter shame. So I could go on. There's a lot of replies like this. And remember, this is a lawyer playing a really crucial role in the justice system. His view on false allegations is informed by his practice, which is specialized in this area. And without criminal defense lawyers, we would not have a functioning justice system. He is literally doing his job and making our system function. And people are mad that he is doing it. Or I guess they're mad that he is doing it well, or he's succeeding for his client. And there is this current movement and this notion that believe everyone undermines the presumption of of innocence. And it feels to me like we're in this readjustment period because, yes, of course, we all are aware that there was a very long period of time for, for generations where women and victims were not believed or they were blamed or shamed for an assault. And of course, that needed to change. And uh, we can debate whether or not that has changed entirely or not. But the solution to that problem is not to villainize criminal defense lawyers for doing their jobs or to replace the presumption of innocence with the presumption of guilt in sexual-based crimes. Because remember, this is an argument that is really only made for certain types of crimes. It's not made for, for example, property crimes. So I don't know, Joanna, you practiced as a a criminal defense lawyer before joining CCF. Just any reaction to that? Yeah, well, you saw similar things during the the Giangameshi trial, right? Where Marie Hennon was called uh, a traitor to her gender for effectively doing, doing her job well. And there were huge problems with those complainants. I'm not defending Gian Gomeshi, who I think has gotten kind of poetic justice because he's kind of uh, in in obscurity. Um, But there were huge problems with credibility. And I don't think it's in men or women or society's best interest if you have a criminal justice system um, that doesn't uphold the sort of bedrock importance of the, the, the presumption of innocence. So yeah, I was also shocked by some of those terrible, just a panoply of bad legal takes. Yeah. Well, that's my that's my uh, bad legal take for the week. Josh, why don't you close us out? Sure. So we hope you'll rate us, review us, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And just a reminder that you can support our work by subscribing to the Canadian Constitution Foundation's YouTube channel, by following us on Twitter, or by visiting our website, theccf.ca. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by your donations, so please click that donate button on our website if you can. If you have ideas for the show, you can write to me, Josh DeHaas, at jdehaas at theccf.ca, Joanna Barron at jbarron at theccf.ca, or Christine at cvangine at theccf.ca. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye.